0: Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.Church, every life made different. So, uh, yeah, a few weeks ago we started our series in the book of Colossians. And and really what we're doing is just walking through this book systematically. uh, and, And really trying to drill down into the context to help us understand the scripture a little better. Uh, the book of Colossians is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae, and, um, and the theme of this letter was the preeminence of Christ or the supremacy of Christ, this idea that nothing compares to the God we serve. Uh, and so when we see this, we have to understand that the context was a culture that was Uh, constantly vying for their attention, for their affection, for their worship. Uh, They literally had gods that they they would serve alongside God, our God. And so uh, what Paul was trying to do is help them understand, no, 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 all of our affection, all of our devotion should be directed one way, and that's at Christ. Uh, because he is supreme over all. And so that really is the theme we see throughout the book of Colossians, and we'll obviously see that some today as we walk through this passage. Uh, and just so you know, if you're one of those people that, that um, you like to work ahead, or I, I never, I was the last minute person, like I would do my homework minutes before it was due, I was that guy. Uh, but maybe you're not like that, maybe you're like my wife, that uh, you will work ahead on stuff. So if you want to, you can finish the book of of Colossians chapter 2, that chapter, uh, this week. Read through it this week. Um, It's from 16 verse 23, and that will finish that chapter, and that's what we'll be talking about next week. And I'm excited about next week's message already. Um, There's a lot of of fun things to talk through. I don't know if it'll be fun. It'll be fun for me. It might not be fun for you, but be here next week. You don't want to miss it. So Colossians chapter 2 verse 1 says this. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now, this letter was written by Paul to a group of believers that he had never met. Um, Paul was leading a ministry, he started a church in Ephesus, excuse me, and one of the people that was saved in his ministry that surrendered their lives to Christ there was Epaphras. And Epaphras was from Colossae. And so when Epaphras had this transformational moment with Christ, he went back to Colossae and started a church. But he didn't just start a church there. He started churches in two other towns in that area. One of the towns was Laodicea. But Paul had never been there before. He was a spiritual father to this church in some ways, but but he had never met them. And so he writes this letter and says, Hey, even though I've never seen you face to face, I love you, right? And this is what he's saying. He's saying, I'm for you, I believe in you, even though we've never seen each other face to face. Now, let me circle back to the first part of this. It says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that lay to see you. So what he's saying here is, um, it's a little different than what we see in chapter one. In chapter one, we see several words, uh, some of them may even be interpreted as struggle, um, but... We see several words that are connected to or related to this word struggle, so we just chalk it up to that's what it means. But if you really look at the context of this word in the Greek, what it really means is, in the Greek culture, in the Greek context, was um, this word literally means an assembly. And you're like, well, how does that relate to the word struggle? That doesn't even... they, They seem like they're totally different. But if you look at it a little deeper... What it's talking about is an assembly of people gathered to watch some sort of spectacle. Um, it might have been the Greek games, because the Greeks loved their games. The most famous is the Olympics, but they had a number of different games that they celebrated They have contests. Uh, that would pit people against each other. There were games uh, in the in the arenas where gladiators would fight each other, or set up scenarios, and people would gather to watch. And so, when Paul says, "I'm struggling," what he's really saying is, "I'm fighting." I want you to know I'm fighting for you, I'm contending for you, because that's really what the context is. That's what we see. In fact, when we look at the same word, the same Greek word used in Scripture, it's used six times. Twice it's used as conflict, twice it's used as fight, once as contention, and once as race. So what Paul is really saying is, I want you to know something. Even though I don't know you, even though I've never seen you face to face, I'm contending for you. I'm fighting for you. I'm running for you. The effort that I put forth is not for myself, but it's for you. And I love this idea because if we're going to be honest, it's easy for us to fight for people we love, isn't it? It's easy for us to fight for people that live in our house with us. It's easy for us to fight with the people that love us. But it's hard to fight for people who don't love us. It's hard to fight for people we've never seen. And Paul was saying to this group of people, I've never seen you before. I've never laid eyes on you before. But I want you to know something. I love you and I'm fighting for you. I'm running for you. Um, Scott alluded to this earlier, but yesterday, if you watched the news, you saw what transpired at a, at a, a place of worship, a house of worship in Pittsburgh and... Um, evil acted out at that place and lives were taken and and lives were transformed and changed and it's heartbreaking to see that happen and and for us if you're anything like me I'm just I'm your pastor so I can admit this it's one thing for that to happen halfway around the world it's it's one thing for that to happen across the country it's another thing for that to happen in our backyard isn't it it just feels different And, and there's something about that that just makes it more real And it it makes it more tangible. It's easier to pray for people when there's some sort of connection there. Uh, When we drive by that place, you know, going into Pittsburgh or whatever it is, there's just a more tangible connection. And what Paul was saying, the reason it's so incredible is Paul was saying, listen, I don't even know you, but I'm fighting for you. And my question is, who, who are you fighting for that you don't even really know? Who are you praying for? Who are you travailing for that you don't even know? Because those are the hard prayers to pray. Those are the ones that are challenging. And what Paul is saying is, I want you to know I love you even though I don't know you. I'm fighting for you even though I don't know you. And that was challenging to my spirit because honestly, it's easy for me to pray for my girls and my wife. It's easy for me to fight for them. But who else am I fighting for? Because Paul's setting a tone for us and he's foreshadowing what Christ has ultimately done. He fights for us even those that are enemies to him. Verse 2 says this, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom we have hid, uh, we, uh, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So basically what he does is he finishes this statement and he says, so why do I fight? And then he answers that question why he fights, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Um, When we look at this, again, if you've been around church, this feels a little like church speak. Uh, But what he says is, I'm doing this to encourage your hearts so that your hearts may be knit together in love. Uh, My mom, she crochets. And so when I think about knitting, I think about My mom's sitting over on the couch crocheting blankets. She makes baby blankets and all kinds of stuff. Um, And that's what I think about. But really, if you look at the context here in this passage, what it's really talking about is more akin to a stitch. Uh, Has anybody ever been in an accident and you had to get some stitches? The rest of you must have lived the safest lives ever. I'm not very very reckless, but I've still got a number of stitches in my life. I've told this story before. I won't give you the whole story. I... uh, I've got stitches on my chin. Or I had sti- not currently, still have stitches, but I had stitches on my chin. I've got a scar where, um, when I was in high school, uh, don't do this, students. I lied to my parents. I told them I was going to spend the night with my friend Chad. Instead, uh, we didn't, in fact, well, I was going to spend the night there. What I omitted from the story was that we were actually going to go to the Metallica concert. <laughs> so I went to the Metallica concert with my buddies and I thought it would be a good idea to get in the mosh pit, and I got in the mosh pit up front, and everybody's jumping around, and it's violent, and some punk kid uh, rammed me in the chin with his head, and immediately, and my chipped teeth, and I'm spitting out teeth, and I'm bleeding, I'm like, oh, so I get out, and I put, a, I put a, a towel on it, and my buddy's checking on me, and I go, hey, do you think my parents will notice this? And they, he, he just like went, oh, 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 like, like, oh, oh, like, that was his response. And so I thought, yeah, this might be bad. So I could barely see, you could see the bone. Uh, and so I thought, yeah, they might notice that. So I went and got stitches, 14 in my chin. And my dad was incredibly graceful. I'll get into that story some other time. Are uh, uh, gracious toward me, even though I didn't deserve it. But 14 stitches in my chin, you see the scar, that's why I have this beard, is to cover up the ugly that's underneath the beard. Uh, but I got the scar. I've got a scar here on my forehead where I fell when I was a kid and hit my head on some stairs and had to get stitches. Um, I got, had stitches in my thumb where I stupidly cut my thumb with a box knife. And this is what happens. This is my experience with stitches. What the doctor does with, with a stitch or with the stitches is he will take two pieces of tissue that are separate and bring them together. And over time, those two separate pieces of tissue will form scar tissue and they'll become one. And this is what Paul desires for his church, for the church of Jesus Christ, is that our very separate hearts will be stitched together as one. And over time, our hearts will literally become one. And we see this sentiment borne out in just a little bit. We'll talk about it in a few weeks uh, in In chapter 3, we'll get into this a little more, but Paul's desire is to encourage the body in such a way that we will come together and our hearts will be knit together, and that doesn't mean that we're going to agree about everything. It doesn't mean that we will always see eye to eye, but what it means is we will walk in unity and love for each other, and that the world will be impacted by that. So his desire is unity in the body, that there is a oneness in us that we are for each other, that the same way he's fighting for people he doesn't know, his prayer is that we will fight for each other, that we will contend for each other, that we will run for each other. That's his heart for the church. Now listen to this. He said, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now this is the thing. Uh, There is no way for us to have full understanding of Christ. Scripture makes it clear we won't have full understanding of Christ until we get to heaven. So what we do is we make do with what we know. And unfortunately, that can be limited at times. Because there are those of you that want all the answers all the time, don't you? I want every step along the way. I don't want you to show me the next step, God. I want you to show me all the steps, right? And that is not how God works. So what we see here is he doesn't ask for assurance of full understanding. He asks for full assurance of understanding. So the word assurance here, the Greek word means most certain confidence. So he says, I want you to have a most certain confidence of understanding. And you go, well, that doesn't make sense. What, is, what does that mean? Well, the word understanding here, the, the Greek word is sunesis, and sunesis means uh, to know something, but, but If you look at it more literally, it means a running together, a flowing together with. And so the picture it paints is this picture of two streams, they come together and merge, where all of a sudden there's not two streams anymore, there's one stream. And then let me go to the next word, this word knowledge. So the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of Christ, this word knowledge is epignosis. And we talked about this last year when we walked through the book of Ephesians together. And Paul uses this word several times in his letters, and the word epignosis means knowledge, but it just doesn't mean book knowledge. It's not like something you learn in a class, where if I said, hey guys, we're going to have Christianity 101, and I'm going to teach you a bunch of stuff about Jesus. That would be one thing. You would know some stuff about Christ. But what epignosis is, it's, a, it's a experiential knowledge. So what happens is, um, we don't just sit in a class, but what we do is we come into contact with Christ, and we see Him work in our lives. We see Him transform our lives, and then we know something different than we did before. See, I've read books about things like quantum physics, which makes me sound smart, but I'm not because I don't know anything about that stuff. But if you brought uh, if you brought a quantum physicist in here, he could tell you all about it because he's seen it, he's done the experiments, he's experienced it. I could tell you some stuff about Major League Baseball because I've read some stuff, I've read some magazines, some articles some books, but I've never played it before. So if I had a former major league baseball player here, they could tell you all about it because they've experienced it. And my fear is that churches across our nation are full of people that know some stuff about Jesus, but they don't have epignosis. They've never experienced Christ in such a way that they have this deep understanding of who he is. Does that make sense to anyone? And so what my desire is, is for the church, not just to be a place where we gather and learn some stuff about Christ, but it's it's that we would come together and experience the Christ, that we would come into contact with him and let him change our lives. So what Paul's really saying here, let me, let, me, let me boil this down. What he's really saying is his desire is that they would have full assurance or this confidence in what Christ is doing in them, that, that these streams that are merging together, it's us surrendering our will to God. It's us saying, God, I want to become who you want me to become, and and I'm going to give up trying to understand everything, and I want to understand what I need to know about you. There's this idea in storytelling called suspended disbelief, and um, it's funny. My wife and I will be watching a movie. It's that time of year, Hallmark movies, right? Be praying for me in my house, and there's like 50 new Hallmark movies coming out, but let's be honest, they're all exactly the same. (laughs) And so we'll be watching a movie because I'm a good husband. I'll be sitting there watching this movie with her and I inevitably will make some snide comment about, oh, come on, they could never fall in love like that. That's so unrealistic. And my wife will look at me and say something like this, Star Wars. Okay, fine, 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 (laughs) fine, fine, right? right. (laughs) that's her whole argument. But what makes it possible for us to watch a Hallmark movie and go, that's believable, and what makes it possible for us to watch a Star Wars movie and go, that's believable, is that we suspend disbelief. We just kind of turn off our brain a little bit and go, oh, "I'm just going to enjoy this." And this is what we have to understand when it comes to Christ, there are some things we cannot understand. That's why faith is involved. And I'm not saying we totally turn off our brains, but there's some things we have to go, "Okay, God, I don't have all the answers. I don't need all the answers. I'm going to trust you in this." This is where we're going to come together and I'm going to have the full assurance of of confidence, of understanding and knowledge of who you are. I'm going to experience you, I'm going to trust you deeply, and because of that, I can walk in who you are. So he says in verse three, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All that's found in Christ. Experience him, experiencing him, knowing him, walking in him. Verse four says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. So he's rejoicing that they are continuing to walk in in Jesus and become who he wants them to be, um, and he mentions something we'll circle back to in a moment. He says, "He says I don't want you to be I don't want you to be argued out of your faith. I don't want you to hear some slick presentation and decide that you need to waver in your faith." Um, and again, he he addresses that in just a moment. Verse six says this: "Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, according uh, and abounding in thanksgiving." Now, I love this because they used a lot of agricultural metaphors in scripture, and this is no different. In verse 7, he uses this this picture of a tree, and he says, rooted and built up in him and established in your faith just as you were taught. He's talking about the firmness of a tree as it grows. It's rooted deeply. It's strong. It's secure. And he's saying this is how we should be in our faith. But the first part of this passage says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, or the Lord, so walk in him. And if you've been around church any amount of time, you have heard someone say, well, I'm walking with Jesus, or, you know, there's some sort of picture of that where we go, yeah, I walk with the Lord, or I walk with Christ, or, and we use this word sometimes flippantly, and it's just kind of Christianese, it's it's church lingo, but we don't even really know what it means, because sometimes we think about it, and we go, yeah, we're walking with Christ, and we're imagining, like, holding hands, like, walking along, you know, and that's nice, but that's not really what it's about, Um, If you look at the Greek language, which is what the New Testament is written in, if you look at the Greek, uh, this word does mean primarily walk, to, to get someplace, to make one's way, progress. One of the definitions in the Greek that I love is to make due use of opportunities. And the truth is, some of you are walking with Christ but you're not making due use of opportunities. You're walking hand in hand with him, but you're not making due use of the opportunities that are coming your way in him. And that's a whole another message. I won't stay on that one right now. But, but I love this because there's a Hebrew word that closely parallels the Greek word, and they have similar meanings. But in the Hebrew, it's got such a deep, um, s- such a rich meaning. And the Hebrew word for this is to regulate one's life. So when we talk about walking with Christ, what we're really talking about, and Paul's real intent here, is not just that we walk hand in hand, we're skipping along, whistling a tune, but his real intent is that Christ is the one who's regulating our lives. See, for so many of us, we love Jesus, but he is a spoke in the wheel. He's not the hub. He is part of what we do, but he is not the center of what we do. So, so for many of us, our lives are regulated by something else. Our lives might be regulated by our... our um, I hate to call it this, but our greed, our pursuit of worldly finances and gain, maybe uh, our our lives are regulated by our our relationships, our friendships, the stuff we own, whatever it is. You you know, some people even, I think their lives are regulated by drama, because I hate drama, but you know there's some people that love it? It's like Gatorade for them. It just replenishes them. You know those people, right? And this is what I would tell you if your life is regulated by anything other than Christ, you're gonna be unhealthy. I was thinking about this. Um, Some people, they have an irregular heartbeat, an arrhythmia, and if it's severe enough, they will actually put a pacemaker in your chest to help regulate your heartbeat to make sure your heart beats in the right rhythm because if it doesn't, there's all kinds of complications that could come with that. You've got higher risk for strokes and blood clots and all kinds of things. And so they'll put in a pacemaker to regulate your heartbeat. And, and this is what we have to understand. Um, if our heart is focused, if the devotion of our life is centered on anything other than Christ, we have an irregular heartbeat in our spirit. So we'll never be as healthy as we should. We're at higher risk for problems, if I can say it that way. But when we allow Christ to regulate us, when he's not just part of our life, but he's the center and the focus of our life, then our heart beats in a regular rhythm. And there's health, there's vibrancy, and we're functioning the way Christ desired force to function. So it's not just about walking hand in hand. It's about saying, Jesus, you are the center and the focus of my life, that everything flows from you and through you, that, that you are the filter for all things. I'm not going to fit you in, but I'm going to make you priority. Does that make sense to anybody? Now, I'm not going to get into how to apply that to your lives because then you're going to think I'm being mean to you because there's all kinds of applications here. And this is what I would tell you to do. Ask Christ, what areas of my life, Holy Spirit, tell me what areas of my life are you not supreme in? What areas of my life are you not regulating? And then allow him to start regulating your life in that way. Colossians 2, oh, I skip back up. Let me skip back down, here we go. Colossians 2, 8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirit of the world, and not according to Christ. So again, this echoes what we set up in verse 4, that he didn't want to delude you, that he didn't want you to be deluded with plausible arguments. And what we see here is this understanding that, um, that a slick presentation can lead us to the wrong direction. And if you don't believe that, you have not watched Christian television very much. Because there are some people on Christian television that they're on television, but I'm not sure they're Christian. And they're slick. Man, they, are, they can present stuff really well. I just am not sure that they're presenting the gospel. They probably would be better off on, uh, on the uh, home shopping network, honestly. Because <laughs> some of them are hawking. Hey, order now, and I'm going to send you this free miracle water. Oh, yeah, I'm messing with some of you now, aren't I? The truth is, man, they've got a great presentation. Man, they're slick. But at the end of the day, are they bringing substances at Christ that they're really bringing? And so Paul's saying, hey, don't don't be swayed from what you know by slick presentations. Don't be swayed by what you know by, by logic or what seems right to you. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. See, we can rationalize things all we want and go, well, this makes sense. But I'm going to be honest with you. The people I talk to that are walking through unrepentant sin will say, well, it, doesn't, it just makes sense. It makes sense for us to live this way. It makes sense for me to do this. Every guy I've ever known that, that cheated on his wife has said something like, well, I wouldn't have done it if she hadn't. So what's he doing? He's justifying. it. He's rationalizing it. And women aren't better than guys. I just have more experience with the guys than I do the women on that issue, okay? Because we all rationalize our sin. We all make ourselves feel better about it. And we go, well, it's understandable because at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're giving ourselves a slick presentation. We're, we're, We're talking ourselves out of gospel truth because of what we feel or what seems right. But at the end of the day, what seems right leads to death. Verse 9 says this, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So in Christ, all of God's fullness dwells in him. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So a couple weeks ago, we we talked about Colossians 119, where it said, um, for in him, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so if, if we understand that the fullness of God dwells in Christ and we are one with Christ that we are filled with the presence of God as well that you have the opportunity to be filled with the presence of God you and me can you believe that I've got more room to fill than you do probably because I'm bigger that's okay Colossians two eleven says this In in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now this... um, especially in Paul's letters, they feel like long run-on sentences sometimes because the Greeks approached punctuation differently than we do in English. So sometimes you get these long sentences that only have some pauses here and there with commas. Uh, but, but let me walk through this with you. So let me let's start with verse 12. And verse 12 says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So this, what he's talking about is baptism and how, what baptism represents. So for us, we do Immersion baptism here at Summit Church, that means you are all the way wet, okay? You're getting all the way in the water. Yeah, there is no sprinkling or anything like that. Uh, and, and the reason we do that is because what we see is Christ was immersed. He was baptized this way. And what we see here Paul talking about is this representation that when we're buried, or when we're baptized, it represents being buried with Christ and coming alive with Christ. So when we come out of the water, it represents new life. Now, I want you to know something. Being baptized doesn't save you, okay? It just represents what God is doing in you, okay? So if you don't get baptized, that doesn't mean you can't go to heaven. But but baptism is something we do to proclaim Christ's love to the world. And so what Paul is telling the church is, hey, baptism represents what really happened. It's not just a religious act. You were dead and you were brought to life. He says in the first part, verse 11, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, um, this is what you have to understand. In the New Testament church, first century church, circumcision was a huge issue because you had... Jewish people who had converted to Christianity, they, they, they accepted Christ as their Messiah and as their Lord, and so they kept their traditions and they carried that into the church. And then you had Gentile believers, uh, people who had no Jewish background, who were being saved and brought into the church, and the, the Jewish people were saying, You need to convert to Judaism, because it was all kind of one big conglomerate at that point. And so you need to do what we're doing in order to be accepted in the church. And one of those things was to be circumcised. And you can understand if you were a new believer and you're like, man, I like this, I wanna be a part of this, there's something different about this, I can't wait. And then they said, oh, and by the way, we need you to sign up for a surgical procedure. Right? On an area you might be uncomfortable talking about, sign up here. You gotta believe that church membership would dip steeply at that point, right? (laughs) That's the worst growth strategy in the world. And so they were divided on this issue, going, whoa, 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 why should we have to do that? And so Paul weighs in, and he talks about it a little more next week, we'll get into it some, but, but really what he says is, hey, in Christ, there's no longer a need for a physical mark, because circumcision represented uh, the covenant between God and, and his people, and it was a physical mark. And Paul says, no, 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 we don't need that anymore. We don't need a physical outward mark because our hearts have been marked. Because our hearts have been marked by Christ, we no longer need to put on a show. We need to put on a front. Um, we don't need to, to act this way or say, well, oh, here's what we do. So again, we'll talk about this more next week. But what Paul says is, no, 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 if it's marked in your heart, then why should it be marked on your body? Because we're His. And so Paul weighs in on that. And again, we'll talk more about that next week. Uh, and I'm excited to share that with you as well because we're really going to be talking about God's, I think God's view on, on worship, on why we pick some things to be important and not others. So we'll weigh in on that. We'll talk about that more then. Verse 13. This is my favorite portion of this passage. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross so when we talk about God it feels like we talk about him in this dualistic way where we say God is benevolent and loving and gentle and merciful and graceful but then we say but he's also a God of justice and he's a, in some ways, he's a militant God. He is righteous and he is holy. And so we go, how do we reconcile that? That's hard to understand, isn't it? Um, my daughter, my youngest daughter, it's, it, I will get onto her sometimes. And she's got such a tender heart, it's hard for her to understand. Hey, I, I discipline you because I love you. There's l- lots of parents that don't discipline their kids and they call that love. I, I think That's abuse. So I discipline you because I love you, right? I want you to end up where I want you to be. And this is what you have to understand. God disciplines his kids because he loves us, but God never, ever, 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 have I made that clear yet? He never causes tragedy in our lives. God never says, I want them to learn a lesson, I'm gonna give them cancer. Never. He never says, hey, I wanna cause people to pray, so I'm gonna send a gunman into a synagogue. That's not God. He is good. He's the embodiment of good. Evil cannot flow out of him, okay? But what God will do is say, I'm gonna take this brokenness and this hurt and this regret and this failure, I'm gonna take all this, I'm gonna redeem it for my glory. I'm gonna bring something good out of it. And that's what our God does. So what we have to understand is um, he is good and loving and benevolent, but he's also righteous and holy and a righteous and a holy God cannot exist with, cannot um, coexist with, with sinfulness. And so, what we have to understand is according to the law, which God cannot violate because he is holy, according to the law, um, sin must be punished because he's righteous and he is holy. But because he is good and benevolent and loving, he said it's going to be punished, but it my punishment's not going to fall on my children. And he sent his son into the world to take on the sin of humanity. So that the, the punishment that rightfully belonged to me did not fall on me, but fell on Christ. The, the punishment that you deserved, which according to the law is death, did not fall on you, but fell on Christ. This is who our God is. He uses legal language here when he talks about trespasses and when he talks about canceling the record of debt. So what he's really talking about is a legal transaction. He says, hey, legally, you're not guilty any longer. My son is guilty. And what we see is our Heavenly Father, God, is the judge. He is the righteous judge sitting in that place. And when, if, again, putting it in legal terms, when the enemy of our soul, if we can call him the district attorney, now, if you're just the district attorney here, you're not the enemy of our soul. We're talking about Satan. He brings accusations against us. And he says, oh, don't you remember when they, don't you remember that they, hey, they just did this. And this is what happens. God, our heavenly father, declares us just. In Romans chapter eight, it says this in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Verse 34 says, who is to condemn Christ Jesus, is the one who died, more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So what Paul is asking the Roman church is, hey, who's going to condemn you? The DA has nothing on you because our father is the judge. And our father says, hey, you think you've got some evidence, but I'm declaring them justified. They are just, they are righteous. So whatever they did, whatever you accuse them of is gone. And that sin, that punishment has to fall on someone. And so Paul follows that up and he says, Hey, but that's falling on Christ. He died for us. Not only did he die for us, he was raised again. And not only was he raised again, he's now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. He is praying for us. He's talking to his Father on our behalf. That's what Christ is doing. That's what he wants to do for you if you're here and you've never surrendered your life to him. Verse 15, finish with this. He says, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know, again, he comes back and settles on this thought of Christ's supremacy, even over rulers, over kingdoms. Some of you are frustrated with the direction of our state government or our national government or our local government, but I've got news for you. God is supreme over all of them. <laughs> there is not a king or a president or a prime minister in the world that doesn't bow their knee to our God. What we see is our God is Supreme overall, we can trust him. What I want to do is, I want to give you an opportunity if you're here and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, you've never experienced life in him, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And I'm not going to embarrass you or bring you forward, I just want to pray for you, and then I'm going to pray with you. So, if you would bow your heads and close your eyes all over this room, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love and your mercy for us, for your goodness, for your benevolence, for your kindness. I just pray that we'd recognize that today, Lord. I pray that you'd open our eyes, help us to to truly walk with you, not just hand in hand, but God, I pray that that you would be the regulator of our lives, that you would be the filter for us. That you wouldn't just be something we also squeeze into our schedule, but you would be what we filter our whole lives through. God, I pray for those here that have never surrendered their lives to you, those that are here that maybe they've walked in a religious way, but they're not really walking with you, I pray that today would be the day they'd surrender everything, make you Lord of their lives, and that you would make the difference in them that that no one else can make, that no one else can do. So have your way with us today. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed, nobody's looking around, I just want to ask if you're here today and you say, Mel, um, what you're talking about is me. I need to surrender my life to Christ. Um, I want to walk with him. I want to make him the center and the focus. I want him to regulate my life. But I can't do this on my own. I need his help. If that's you today, would you be bold enough to slip your hand up real high where I can see it? And then you can put it right back down. If you're here today and you say, Mel, pray for me. I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. Yeah, thank you over here on my left. Awesome. Who else? Thanks, I see you up in the balcony. Praise God. Just a few more seconds. Anyone else? I'd like everyone in the room to repeat this prayer with me. Say this out loud. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and thank you for saving me by paying the price for my sins on the cross. Today, I am innocent of everything I've ever done. Thank you for making me clean and whole. From now on, my life is yours. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause today. Now listen, if you prayed that prayer today and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, I just want you to know, scripture says that you're a new creation today, that the old is gone and the new has come. And we wanna help you take the next step. We wanna help you grow in your faith. So if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, if you would take one minute and fill out the card that's in the seat back in front of you. On one side it says need prayer, and the other side it says salvation fill out the side of the card that says salvation and just drop it in one of our offering boxes as you leave. There's two in the back of the room, one in the balcony and one just outside these east doors as well. Let us know about that and in the next day or two, one of our staff is gonna reach out to you, get you some resources and get you plugged into relationships. that are gonna help you grow and become who God wants you to be. If you're watching online and you made that decision today, I just want you to know I'm so proud of you. I'm so excited for you and we wanna help you take the next step as well. So if you would, please text the word salvation to the number 555-888 and if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, text us. Let us know. We're going to help you take the next step, whether it's here in Indiana or somewhere throughout the United States or world. We'll help you get plugged into a church. If you can't reach one of the cards here in the room, feel free to text salvation to that number. We'll help you take the next step. Here's what's going to happen right now. The worship team's going to lead us in one more song. We're going to worship our supreme God together. And while we're doing that, our prayer team's going to come forward and they'll be on either side of the stage. If you need prayer for any reason at all today, Step out as we begin to sing, find one of them, let them agree with you in prayer. And then in just a moment, our executive pastor, Steve Rhodes is gonna come and he'll dismiss us and close us out. So why don't you stand your feet all over the room. We're gonna worship together one more time before we go today. Guys, I tell you all the time, I hope you know it. I love you more than you know and I'm so honored that I get to be your pastor. God bless you guys. Have a great week.